Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. This is the last episode of winter as it becomes spring on March the 20th. Today is the 16th. Uh, And that also means that St. Patrick's Day is tomorrow, Friday the 17th. I did wait until Thursday again this week to record the episode because Mandalorian premieres on Wednesdays and I, of course, want to be able to talk about that one this week. So we're recording on Thursdays probably from here on out um, unless I kind of switched up and skip a week. But Thursdays just seem to be kind of working out for me, so we'll keep doing this at least for the time being. Um, as for what other things we're covering on this week's episode, it is, we're going to continue the Tarot Studies, which this card of the week for the Major Arcana is number four, which is the Emperor. So we'll talk about the symbolism, a little bit of the history uh, interpretation, and then the pop culture ties in the anime tarot and the Marvel tarot. Our manga of the week is Kaiju Girl Caramelise by Speak Aoki. It is absolutely adorable, and I'm really happy to share that with you, and I hope uh, somebody at least checks that out after hearing about it, because it is adorable! We have some exciting manga news, various things getting published in English, um, and spinoffs and whatnot, uh, much of which I actually am pretty familiar with, uh, so that's really awesome. Uh, we The new comic books this week, uh, things that came out the 15th, are going to be kind of the extent of the current comic book stuff. I don't have any cur- uh, current comics from last week that I'm going to be covering. Uh, honestly, I just got really excited about what's coming out this week, and Uh, We're going to cover all of those on the next podcast episode, including whatever it was that came out last week, like uh, Poison Ivy and such. We'll cover those all together. We also have a lot of comic book news and announcements, uh, mostly covering things that are going to be happening in the big two in June. Uh, So we have a lot of exciting new things, some new Tom King series, some new events, uh, and some things that are ending and then just some characters who are getting their own solo series, so that's really fun. Um, Again, skipping the recent reads this week, but then we're going into the TV and movie segment. We have a number of things that are new and noteworthy uh, that I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, Not a whole lot for announcements, but I do want to talk about the American Born Chinese trailer, and specifically uh, what came out, I think it was just this morning, the James Jean poster that he was asked to do for that uh, after watching the series himself. So I'll talk about that poster, about the trailer. Um, I'm very excited for the May 24th American Born Chinese. We do have some anime news, some fun things, including English dubs that will be getting started for some new series and the premiere dates for some more anime series that um, I think we will all be looking forward to. I know I'll be looking forward to. Um, And that pretty much just leaves Mando Episode 3, Season 3, Episode 3. This was titled Chapter 19, The Convert, and interestingly enough, we'll talk about the two different storylines, the two different things that that convert can be referring to. It's super exciting. I'm super excited. Let's go ahead and get the podcast going. If you are at all interested in the goings-on of myself and my social media pages and my website, all of that can be found linked in the bottom of each episode's description, including the Yancey Street Discord, which I would really love for more people to join. Um, So please do feel free to join that and we can talk about all kinds of stuff, not just what we talk about on the podcast. You can just go there to talk and make friends, is the theory. So yeah, let's get going here. 
For our tarot lessons this week, we are covering card number four of the Major Arcana, which is the Emperor. Um, we'll talk the symbolism, the history, the interpretations and meanings of getting this car in a tarot draw, and then the anime tarot and Marvel tarot, which I think have been really fun to go over each week. Uh, but starting with the symbolism from my own notes here, um, the... The emperor is the top of the secular hierarchy, the ultimate male ego. There is a tall city and mountain range behind the figure of the emperor, signifying being backed by a solid foundation, but one that can be resistant to change. There is a small river, however, going through in the background as well, suggesting that there are emotions under a stony exterior, and it will take some digging to get to it, because you can see in most, uh, in most cards, the river is actually kind of in a crack in the ground. The Emperor is seated on a stony chair, looking far less comfortable or approachable than the Empress, who you will remember was seated in a field of wheat on cushions. He does have a golden crown, signifying that he is an authority figure, and he also has ram's horns uh, in this card on the crown. Lots of cards have them on the crown, they'll have them on the... Um, the chair behind him, somewhere around his head, there's always going to be ram's horns, which is the symbol of Mars, Aries, in the Zodiac. Um, and that is, of course, the male, I guess, correspondent to um, the both the Zodiac and the ancient gods, the Greek gods. Interestingly, um, and I'll have the link to this article in my notes. My cat is in my lap. I'm sorry if you can hear her. Um... <laughs> Uh, the ram's horns are also a totem of the Jewish people as well. Uh, if you would like to read any more of that history, the linking between the Jewish people and the ram's horns and that history, um, there's actually some really interesting stuff that I'll touch on lightly, um, but that uh, I have a link to a really interesting tarot studier um, who talks about the emperor card and various ties to different cultures through time. Uh, I'll have that linked in my tarot, in my, excuse me, my podcast notes, which is as always linked in the description. So you can check that out for more information, not just on this, but um, you can check out the podcast notes for more information on everything really in the podcast. The emperor holds an Ankh scepter, which of course is the ancient Egyptian symbol for life. And usually he holds an orb in his left hand, representing that which he rules, which is, of course, the world. Uh, usually there is armor underneath the red that he wears. The armor is symbolizing uh, protection from physical harm, and the red indicates the emperor's power. Um, he also usually has a beard, which, of course, symbolizes his age, wisdom, and authority of the emperor. Uh, the Emperor card has essentially changed very little over the centuries. In 1910, uh, A.E. Waite wrote that the Emperor symbolizes stability, power, protection, logic, and realization. Uh, it can represent a great person, aid, reason, conviction, as well as authority and will. Interestingly, sometimes the Emperor card will replace the High Priestess Index where the Puppus is removed, which is apparently still a thing in um, certain belief groups. The, um, <laughs> the High Priestess card is seen as her heretical, I guess, still, um, because of the various 
conspiracies that I actually talked about in that podcast episode where we talked about the high priestess. I think that was two episodes ago. Um, so sometimes there is the emperor one and the emperor two in the decks where the high priestess is removed uh, and they, they replace that with a second emperor card. And then of course, reverse for the emperor, you can have the reading being domination, excessive control, lack of discipline, and inflexibility, which of course you can see that symbolism for uh, the lack of flexibility with that stony mountain, the stony exterior, the discomfort of the figure on the card, uh, and the fact that to get to the river of emotion, you will have to do a lot of digging through that stony exterior. On kind of that same note, oddly enough, uh, from what I have read, uh, this card isn't meant to suggest toxic masculinity, at least when it is read upright. Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism itself connects masculinity to compassion. It takes strength to both rule as well as show mercy. The Modern Witch deck, which is the one that I actually am referencing uh, in my notes myself, made the figure feminine to show that this card isn't actually related to a gender, more like actively protecting the foundations of society. This card appearing isn't necessarily referring to a powerful male figure. Rather, it is just uh, masculine traits and whatnot which aren't necessarily tied to gender that way. Um, now, something that I kind of wanted to add, the first time that I came across the connection between, um, in this case, it's ram's horns, uh, really it's a horned head, which you see a lot in male power symbols, um, especially in modern times, um, the connection between that and the female reproductive organs, i.e. the uterus and ovaries, and how that those two shapes are extremely similar. The first time I came across that connection, or that was pointed out to me, is in a book called Missing Witches. Um, I haven't finished it, but from what I have read, it's extremely, extremely well, um, well read and educational, interesting, interestingly educational. But anyway, in case you never knew, uh, those shapes are pretty much the same, you know, uh, cow or bull heads or ram's heads in this, in this sense, and the uh, feminine reproductive system of the uterus and ovaries. Those are pretty much the same shape. Um, and so that was something that, you know, has been known for many, many years. That's not news to anybody. Um, so if you are uh, at all interested in that link that I put in there for, um, it is a blogspot link. Um, and this, I guess it's a dude, he has some very interesting thoughts on uh, tarot and everything. And one thing that he says, as well as the ram's horns being the totem of the Jewish people, he mentions that uh, the connection between the uh, uterus and the ram's horn shape. It says, the ram that is the strength of the emperor is also the potential life-giving force symbolized by the maiden in Menarche. And if you were to go and look at what the Missing Witches book actually says, um, it talks about a historian, a female historian, who theorized an ancient civilization that was matriarchal instead of patri um, patriarchal patriarchal. <laughs> Uh, patronizing. It's funny how that, um, yeah, matriarchal. Um, and she theorized a lot of it was based on that connection between the shape of the ram's horns and the uterus and ovaries. Um, and she basically theorized that 
the ram's horns originated in the feminine and then became more known as the masculine thing in a more modern sense, which honestly is fairly accurate from what I've seen, especially um, if you look at those links that I'll have in the podcast notes. Very interesting things historically. Now let's go ahead and move away from history and symbolism a little bit and more into the actual interpretation of if you pull or draw the emperor card. Now this I will take from the Bidi Tarot website as usual. What they say is, as the father figure of the tarot deck, the emperor suggests that you are adopting this fatherly role, regardless of whether you are male or female, providing for your family and protecting and defending your loved ones. You may be the breadwinner or the rock for those who rely on your stability and security. The emperor reflects a system bound by rules and regulations. You create law and order by applying principles or guidelines to a specific situation. Create calm out of chaos by breaking down any problem into its parts and then mapping out the actions you need to take and resolve it. Be systematic, strategic, and highly organized in your approach and stick to your plan into the end. As a leader, you rule with a firm but fair hand. You have a clear vision of what you want to create, and you organize those around you to manifest your goal. You listen to the advice of others, but you prefer to have the final say. Conflict doesn't scare you, and you won't hesitate to use your power to protect those you care about. And in return, those people will repay you with the loyalty and respect you deserve. Claim your authority as leader and influencer and don't let others put you down. The Emperor card also signifies world knowledge and expertise. Through the course of your life, you have gained valuable wisdom and life expertise, and now you enjoy offering guidance, advice, and direction to someone who might benefit from it. You may be a teacher, coach, boss, or just a good friend who likes to take what you have learned and pass it on to others so others can be as wise and powerful as you. Now, the Marvel Tarot, which I've talked about before, and I hope I don't need to explain again, it's just this fictional character's journal that covers a fair amount of the major arcana of tarot cards. Um, And for this one, the fictional character in question has drawn two characters for being the emperor. One is Nagala, or Naga, I'm not sure which one he goes by. I guess Naga is correct. And the other is Doctor Doom. So here's what this dude's journal says about these characters and the card. The emperor archetype is linked by ancient packs to the Elder God set. Just as the empress belongs to Gaia, the priest is Cathan's servant and the priestess is Ashtur's. It only makes sense that Set's king would wear Set's crown. I thought at first that the green, scaly monarch appearing on the card was the legendary emperor of Lumeria, Naga. However, all of my sources tell me that Naga is, for the moment, still dead. That would that would mean the handsome, itchy creature... <laughs> itchy... Itchy and creature appearing on the card is Naga's great 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 granddaughter Nagala. There we go. I have I have never known the Emperor card to choose a female subject unless somehow the two are bind- blending. One of two times it is Nagala. The deck is usually drawn to supernatural subjects. Doctor Doom has been venturing further and further into the legacy left to him by his gypsy sorceress mother, Cynthia Von Doom. The cards seem to have taken notice. I got a little nervous thinking about this particular emperor possessing or being possessed by the power of the serpent crown. One of time, one of two times, it is Doctor Doom, and that leaves us with the anime tarot which is my favorite tool for teaching tarot and for learning tarot, I guess would be 
equal. Um, and this one is by Natasha I Iglesias, and I talk about this one every week. It's my probably my favorite tarot deck that I own. So here we go. Um, the archetype for the Emperor card that she has here is the Company Boss. It says, the Emperor's analog in anime is the Company Boss. There are many boss types in anime, from cruel and manipulative to dopey and friendly, but almost all are symbols of structure, authority, leadership, and discipline, whether or not they always stay true to these values. If the anime is set in high school, certain teachers can embody this role, especially if the high school is non-traditional. The examples that she gives is Roy Mustang in Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, Zef in One Piece, Mr. Ton in Agretsuko, oh, Mr. Ton, Nezu in My Hero Academia, Levi Ackerman, nice, in Attack on Titan, and Great Demon King Piccolo in Dragon Ball. <laughs> nice, Piccolo. And then next week, we'll return with some more tarot studies, and we'll be covering card number five of the Major Arcana, which is the Hierophant. Basically, the male high priestess, and I'm sure that's going to be nothing problematic about that card's history, right? <laughs> the manga of the week, I am proud to say this week, is Kaiju Girl Caramelise by Spika Aoki, which might be Spika... I don't know. Spika Aoki is what I'm saying for right now. Absolutely adorable. Um, I've read every, all of the English volumes of this one that are out, and I don't think there's any announcements for more right now, but we know that there's going to be more. It is not finished yet. Um, as for its publication, there are only six volumes out in English, and they are very quick reads, um, which is not to say that they are not good. They're just extremely light. They're very lighthearted, um, for the most part. We got into some really cool stuff in the latest volume, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. They're what you would call a seinen manga series, um, and there's a little bit of funny story behind that categorization. Author Spika Aoki had previous work serialized in the in magazines aimed towards girls, which we would know as shoujo, right? So she was worried when the male-targeted seinen magazine picked up her series. Aoki thought she would have to make the series aim more towards guys until her editors advised her that the story really works best as shoujo, even though it's in a seinen magazine. So it's kind of both, technically. Um, traditionally, mangas are categorized um, you know, seinen shoujo and you like that, by depending on what they're published in, and it's usually these magazines originally where they are put in chapter by chapter, um, and depending on what target audience the magazine has, that usually is what, what puts in the official target audience for that particular manga when it comes out, um, in, you know, being released on volumes. But like this, there are exceptions where um, this was the first time that Spika Aoki had drawn a shoujo, basically, that was more, um, it was, it's a monster shoujo, basically. <laughs> it's a young, it's a young girl's, um, monster love story. <laughs> it is so cute. Um, and it is published in the U.S. by Yen Press, and then in Japan by Kurakawa Shoten. I believe it started as a monthly manga in 2018. As for the plot, our main character is Kuroe, which could be Kuro, I am not sure. Um, but her name is Kuro Akaishi, and she is described as psychotan by her classmates, um, because she's, like, this goth lowly kid. She's adorable, okay? But she gets bullied for not being very pretty, I guess. 
And so they call her Psychotan, and she's an outcast at school. Unknown to everyone, she suffers from a rare incurable illness that causes deformations in her body at random times. She is surprised one day to find that Arata Minami, a popular guy in her class, starts to pay attention to her and questions the weird new feelings she has around him. It isn't long before her mother confesses to Kuroe she is in fact a kaiju, which confirmed a realistic dream the night prior that involves her monster form rampaging through Tokyo. That's not quite how it plays out, to be honest. Uh, This description is not super great, but it gets the the point across. But basically, um, every time that she gets, like, really emotional, she starts breaking out in kaiju parts until, at one point, she finally becomes a full-blown kaiju. Um, But but she doesn't suffer from a rare incurable illness. And that's where you get into, like, we're getting into a more interesting, a little bit deeper than just the surface kind of plot points with the more recent volumes, because we're finding out that she is not a human with a kaiju illness. She is a kaiju that adapted to fit into the human world without really even being aware that it was doing it. Really, really cool stuff. So her mom's not even her mom. Her mom was her founder. Mom found her. <laughs> Uh, But as for the characters, Kuro Akaishi, the protagonist of the story, Kuro has been suffering from a mysterious illness for at least 16 years that causes abnormal body growth and disfigurement. This has led Kuro to become an outcast feeling that nobody could accept someone like her. While Kuro does not remember her past, she tries best to live a normal life at the present. She also has a dog named Jumbo King, um, who is really funny. I think he is a... Corgi, if I recall. And she is surprised when Arata decides to date her and tries to hide her transformations from him whenever she can. Spoiler alert, he does eventually figure it out. Speaking of Arata, his name is Arata Minami. Arata is a popular guy in Kuro's school who starts getting model offerings. He gets modeling gigs uh, and basically becomes what you might call TikTok famous. He takes interest in Kure. revealing that he too wants to be out of the spotlight and lost a lot of weight to become the person that he is now. This quickly irritates the other jealous schoolgirls crushing on him who cannot understand what he sees in Kuroe. Arata does not know that she is secretly a kaiju, (laughs) which causes misunderstandings to happen. And yes, there is a lot of misunderstandings. I think at one point they even break up for a little bit. Um, But then, of course, it all kind of solves itself. Rinko Aikishi Akaishi is Kuro's devoted mother. She is shown to be there for her daughter against judgmental people, knowing full well that she is a kaiju. She's a former biologist, and that's how she uh, she she found kaiju eggs and brought one home, and that's how, hey, baby kaiju is now a human. Rinko is a big fan of the singer Mayumi Hamasaki, who is based on Ayuma, Hama, oh, Ayuma Hamasaki. Um, she's like a fangirl. Then we have two of the friends of Kuro, Manatsu, and Reiri. Uh, Reiri is, like, absolutely, um, well, no, it's Manatsu. She is the one who is absolutely, like, horny for the kaiju for some reason. Uh, she's, like, romantically obsessed with it. It's wild. She wants it to stomp her and squeeze her and stuff. It's it's really something. And then Rayri is uh, a really popular girl at school who wears a lot of makeup. Um, and then it's revealed that she, like, 
people don't like the way that she looks, I guess. She's compared to an ape. <laughs> um, and that's why she wears a lot of makeup and is secretly very pretty. Or secretly very not pretty? I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing, but the two of them become friends with Kuro, and it's just, it's really cute to see her kind of blossom with the, oh, she gets a boyfriend, and she gets these two new friends, and meanwhile she's doing this whole kaiju thing. It's It's a very sweet series. Moving on to manga news, though, uh, we've got a couple of points of mostly things that are either getting put on hiatus, ending, and then a good number of things that are being released in English for the first time, which I think is very exciting. Uh, so first off, the Ancient Magus's Bride series, as well as uh, Ghost and Witch, which is by the same author, Kore Yamazaki, those are all go or they're both going on hiatus. Um, it's going to start the, let's see what the, oh no, it's ending, the Ancient Magic's Bride is ending the college arc, and then it's going to start off after the hiatus with the Beasts arc, and the author has asked fans to wait until the new arc starts. No word, as far as I can tell, on why there is a hiatus, um, but this one is published by Seven Seas in English, and it has inspired... Uh, or the Ancient Magus's Bride, at least, has inspired a uh, anime show that premiered in 2017. I had a really hard time getting into it, to be honest, but a lot of people really, really love it. If you are a fan of Teasing Master Takagi-san, there is a series by the same creator, which is going to wrap up pretty soon, and it is called In the Heart of Kunoichi Tsubaki. Uh, it's going to end in two chapters, which if there are no delays, that's going to be in May. The description of that series is the No Boys Allowed Kunoichi female ninja comedy manga centers on the titular Tsubaki Kunoichi, the best student in her school. She lives in a village of women who, with the with village of women with the rule that they cannot have contact with men. However, she has a curiosity about men that she cannot reveal. Sounds classic anime or manga. Um, J Novel Club, which is a light novel magazine sort of thing, online thing. Um, they are adding Accidentally in Love, The Witch, The Night, and The Love Potion Slip-Up by writer Harunadon and illustrator Ada. It sounds honestly very fun to me, but I forgot to put the description in here. Square Enix has three new English mangas that they're going to be releasing. The first is a Final Fantasy fourteen. Eorzea Academy spinoff. I know Final Fantasy is like wildly popular. That one is going to come out September 19th. Uh, the Ice Guy and the Cool Girl by Miyuki Tonogaya is releasing October 10th. Uh, this one uh, was launched on social media. It gained a bunch of popularity and then it got serialized uh, on the Gangan Pixiv service. Uh, it's still being published and it also has an anime which is going on Crunchyroll right now. I love it and it does have an English dub, the ice guy and his cool female colleagues. So that one is finally getting put out in English and you bet your butt I'm going to be reading it. Mr. Villain's Day Off is coming out August 15th by Yu Morikawa. Uh, Square Enix is publishing it in English and... Uh, what it says is an evil organization from another planet is trying to take over Earth. An extraterrestrial from that organization named the General tirelessly fights against Earth's defenders every single day in a battle of life and death. However, today is his day off. And apparently this one is scheduled to have an anime being released for it soon as well. 
Seven Seas Entertainment also has a number of mangas that it's releasing. Also, if you want any further descriptions of these ones, I do have all of their descriptions um, from the publishers on my podcast notes. I'm just not going to go over it to waste everybody's time, uh, and we'll just kind of cover the rest of it. If you want the full description, you can check the site. So for Seven Seas, the new mangas that they have announced that they'll be releasing soon, uh, first off is Lonely Castle in the Mirror, coming in English in November. It uh, is coming is based on a light novel, I believe. The, um, oh, sorry, yeah, the manga is based on the light novel of the same name, and the light novel inspired an anime that came out on December 23rd in Japan. Notably, the International Film Festival of Rotterdam selected the movie for a special showcase at this year's event, so it must be pretty good. Uh, Mito's Sheep Princess in Wolf's Clothing manga is also releasing in November as well. Um, we'll have a little description on my... Well, I'll go ahead and read it for you. It's short. Aki is a wolf woman who lives in the land of sheep people. While working as a butler... said a butcher. That would have been dark. <laughs> While working as a butler in the royal castle, she happens to save the life of Princess Momo, after which the princess demands that Aki be her private tutor. Momo seems sweet and docile, but she turns out to be a difficult student, and Aki soon learns that the princess's fluffy exterior hides a hungry heart. Aki must deter Momo's advances, but she cannot deny her wolf's instincts for can only deny her wolf's instincts for so long. That sounds odd. <laughs> I'm not sure what they're talking about denying her advances to Momo. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> a new one also is Easygoing Territory Defense by the Optimistic Lord. Production magic turns a nameless village into the strongest fortified city. That was the full title. And it's debuting, I believe, next January. Uh, the first volume of the light novel will debut in the same month. And, gosh, that was just the longest title I think I've ever seen on a manga. And then we're getting the single volume, which was originally created back in 2009 to 2010 uh, in Japanese, but in English we're finally getting The Secret Friendship by Kazun Kawahara and Aiji Yamakawa. Um, yeah, that's it's kind of an older one, but it's nice to see that they're still going back and releasing things in English for the first time from this kind of era, because it gives me hope that we're going to get certain things that I want to see published either in English or reissued in English. I would love to see those things happen. Um, and then finally, The Villainess Who Has Been Killed 108 Times, She Remembers Everything, is a manga that they will be releasing from Seven Seas in October, and obviously she's trying to find a way to break the 109th death cycle, because apparently that's what's happening with her. Personally, from this list of new releases that I kind of went over, I definitely think that I'm going to be picking up a number of these. Um, I know that I am definitely going to be, I already said, the Ice Guy and the Cool Girl, 100% going to be reading that one. Um, to, it's going to be until October till it comes out, but it is still ongoing, um, so we'll have a good amount of that to catch up on in English. Um, and then the Lonely Castle in the Mirror sounds pretty interesting as well, um, especially the whole idea that the movie was showcased at the Rotterdam International Film Festival. I think that's a pretty impressive point. We're skipping over reads for this past week because I didn't have a ton that I was really excited to read, so we'll just save it for next week. Because next week I have a ton that I'm excited to read. Um, 
or to talk about for the next podcast episode because these comics came out yesterday, the 15th of March. Um, and there is a bunch I'm very excited about, particularly Hellcat number one from Marvel. Uh, writer Christopher Cantwell, artist Alex Linz, when we have covers by Perry Perez, Ryan Stegman, Scotty Young, Peach from Moco, and in Yukli, it is super exciting. What they have to say about it is, leaping from the pages of Christopher Cantwell's Iron Man run, Hellcat is back. Patsy is back on the West Coast, living in a demon house haunted by the ghost of her mother. When someone close to Patsy's inner circle is murdered, Hellcat becomes the prime suspect. Now Patsy must prove her innocence and both evade the police and the supernatural sleepwalkers. To add to the perils she faces, her demonic ex Damon Hellstrom shows up, and that's never a good thing a supernatural superhero murder mystery. Now, I did have a very brilliant podcast special, if I do say so myself, on Patsy Walker's Hellcat. You can check that out. I will have it linked in the podcast notes, as well as what I have of her appearance reading list summary, which I think is pretty much everything she's ever been in post her romance comics days. What's What do you mean her romance comics days, Anna? Check out the podcast special linked in the podcast notes, and also, you know, down the line on the list of episodes, uh, to find out more. Also coming out this week, because that's what we were talking about, uh, Little White Lie, number one from Aftershock, by Purgatory's Ray Fox and Mark Torres. This is a one-shot. When wealthy, identical twin brothers find a bizarrely seductive, shape-shifting creature living on their isolated estate, they get drawn into a mind-bending battle of predator and prey against an enemy that turns all their greatest strengths against them. The Forge number one comes from Image by Eric Troutman, Greg Rucka, and artist Mike Henderson. A squad of planet-smashing super soldiers find the routine mission their routine mission to be anything but easy in this one-shot. Mature tale inspired by sci-fi stories of Heavy Metal Magazine and Conan the Barbarian. No One Number One from Image Comics. A rash of murders in Pittsburgh sparked a dangerous political movement, copycat killers, and a masked vigilante who's still determined to hold the powerful accountable. This is by Brian Buccioletto and Kyle Higgins. Junction Jones Number One from Scout Comics by T.C. Pescator and Luciano Cruzado. Cruzado, yep. In a multidimensional town, two scavengers discover a dead Earth hobo whose body shows evidence of a government cover-up. Before they can escape without notice, a suspicious maintenance team arrives on the scene looking for the same body. From DC, we have Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods number one, which is continuing the aftershocks of the Lazarus Planet event. After the events of Lazarus Planet, the gods of the multiverse have decided to take down the heroes they once called champions and the world they've sworn to protect. For years, the gods sat idle atop their mountains as their legends faded into obscurity along with their bodies. Now is their time to remind the selfish mortals of their existence and take back the world with something more powerful than belief. Fear. Only the brave heroes Wonder Woman and Shazam stand in their way, but will their combined powers be enough? We have Superman Lost Number 1 by Christopher Priest and artist Jason Paz and Carlo Pagulian. It is a 10-issue series that sees Superman and Lois Lane as strangers after the Man of Steel returns home from being lost in space for 20 years that was merely a brief passing of time on Earth. 
Justice Society of America number three comes from DC Comics. I really have liked this one a lot so far. It is by Jeff Johns and Mikael Janin. Huntress's journey to save the Justice Society of America lands her smack dab in the middle of the 1940s at the birth of the team. Can Huntress save the present-day JSA work together long enough, and the present JSA work together long enough, to figure out how to stop the strike on the 40s team? We also have a Maria Laura Sanapo International Women's Day cover, which I absolutely adore. All Against All, number four of five, is from Image Comics by Alex Pacnettel and Kaspar Wingard, who is a brilliant artist. Uh, the series has been fantastic. I can't recommend it enough, and we only have one issue left after this one. Captain Marvel, number 47, is by Kelly Thompson Still and Sergio Fernandez Davia. Uh, we have variants this week by Emanuela Lupacino and Peach Momoko. Overwhelmed and trapped in the Brood's backyard, Captain Marvel and her team are forced to sacrifice one of their own. But the Brood let Carol through their clutches once before, and in doing so, created one of their worst enemies. They won't make that mistake again. Hexware number 4 from Image Comics by Tim Seeley and Zulema Scotto-Lavina. Hexware's mission continues. After unexpectedly joining forces with the Helljumpers, the android in service of the Darkest Depths is determined to get to the bottom of the conspiracy behind Jessie's death. But the answer she gets may be worse than she ever imagined when all signs point to Kieran, Jessie's father, as the prime suspect. Then we also have 8 Billion Genies, number 8 of 8, series finale from Image Comics by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown. This has been a brilliant series, 10 out of 10. Danger Street, number 4, by Tom King from DC Comics. And Immoral X-Men, not Immortal, Immoral X-Men, number 2, from Marvel, which is following the Sins of Sinister event still. Next up, we have some comic book news and announcements. A great bulk of this is going over the more or less big two, the new stuff that they kind of announced in June. Uh, but we're going to start off with something that is definitely not big two. Uh, it's an Image Comics uh, graphic novel by Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson of Dracula, motherfucker, which is a fan fantastic graphic novel. I am so happy that I bought that as soon as I saw the title. It was 100% worth it. The vibes are pristine. Anyway, Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson of Dracula Motherfucker are working together on a new Image Comics graphic novel called Paris Social. It's going to be coming out in October of this year. What they say about it, Alex DeCampi is quoted saying, Parasocial is a twisted exploitation thriller that will leave you never feeling safe at a convention again. It's a deep dive into all the things we've agreed not to talk about in modern fandom and celebrity, with an ending you'll never see coming. Most importantly, it's Erica's most beautiful and strikingly innovative book yet. I'm just here to cover up some of her art with words. I, I just... Okay, so... Uh, that's very exciting to me because having read Dracula Motherfucker and the, oh, uh, not prologue, the opposite of that, the epilogue, <laughs> or not really epilogue, but like the, the artist and the creator notes in the back, I guess. Um, Alex DeCampi wrote a very clear and precise statement, almost statement, um, a paragraph, let's say, on just in case you missed it, because it was pretty obvious reading the graphic novel, um, on the on the vast metaphor that the story was showing us, it was for is is very it's it's very much that kind of thing, um, really precise paragraph 
going over that just in case you didn't get it because it was pretty clear in the in the story itself. Erica Henderson, however, she provided pages of notes and of thoughts about the story and character design and artistic detail. Like, the fact that this next project, uh, Erica Henderson, I am a fan of for life. Uh, I, 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 I'm really excited for Parasocial. Uh, this is just one of many things that's going to be coming out in October and November that I have to look forward to. It's going to be a great fall. But anyway, now that we've covered the thing that I am probably most excited about, uh, we have some Marvel and DC things that were announced mostly for uh, June and onwards. First off, Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto's Daredevil run is going to be ending in August. I think it was 2018 when he kicked this run off, um, and it has been pretty much one of the most consistent daredevil runs with the with the exception of the devil's reign event which very much felt like they told chip he had to do a daredevil event and that's what he came up with on the fly um that's not really a compliment though <laughs> it's not supposed to be um very very solid daredevil run um i know I, I blasted through the first like 15 issues and caught up with it and i spent a very long time reading it after the after that as it was coming out um fell behind after devil's reign because as i said i i don't have a lot of positive things to say about devil's reign uh i will say that electra daredevil is one of the best things i think chip Zarsky has ever done uh and marco chiquetto's design for her is just pristine. I absolutely adore it. But their run is ending in August, so if you're a fan of that, I guess R.I.P. We are also getting a Loki series coming in June. It's going to be a four-issue miniseries from Dan Waters and artist German Peralta. Uh, Eve Ewing is giving us a new Black Panther series in June, uh, and that pretty much wraps up the Marvel announcements. There wasn't too much on Marvel as of yet. It's possible we'll still learn more as the month goes along. But moving over to DC, uh, Steelworks is going to be a new series by Michael Dorn and Sammy Basri. Uh, Steelworks being, of course, John Henry Irons, a.k.a. Steel, uh, and his company Steelworks and all of the different versions of Steel, I'm sure, that are in that. Um, if you don't know anything about Steel, I have uh, the little the little blurb from DC on my podcast notes, including, you know, Steel is John Henry Irons, an engineer who built this mechanized suit to replace Superman, blah, 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 uh, when after he was killed by Doomsday, yada, 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 all of that information, the issues he came from, and even some details about his TV appearances in Superman and Lois are on the podcast notes. Slightly more excitingly, uh, I would say very much for me at least, DC Pride 2023. I don't know why they bother putting in number one because you put in DC Pride 2023 and people know it's that one shot. Um, but we're getting a good number of stories in this one. It looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight stories, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I won't go through the description of them. There are the the little bit, the little blurb, the solicit that DC gave. But what I do have is who's in the stories and who's writing them. So that's nice because I feel like it's always the actual, uh, the actual way to decide if you're going to buy the issue or not. 
Uh, Tim Drake and Connor Hawk have a story by Nadia Shamus and Bruca Jones. Circuit Breaker and the Flash of Earth-11 by A.L. Kaplan. Midnighter, Apollo, and Alan Scott Green Lantern by Josh Chirillo and Don Aguilo. Ghostmaker and Catman vs. Cannon and Saber by Rex Ogle and Steven Sadowski. John Kent and John Constantine, that's awesome, by Christopher Cantwell and Skylar Patridge, which, yes, John Constantine is queer. Natasha Irons and Nubia by Mildred Lewis. Lewis. Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and Crush by Leia Williams and Paulina Gonchao, who is a brilliant artist, and Leia Williams is pretty good too. Multiversity by Grant Morrison and Hayden Sherman. Those are the eight stories, and it's also going to include a five-page preview of the upcoming Dreamer story by Nicole Maines and Rye Hickman. Rye Hickman is a non-binary artist who I first discovered... Um, let me think, let me think. Uh, I gotta look it up because I want to get it right. Aha, Lonely Receiver. Um, <laughs> 10 out of 10, that one. And the art was like 90% of the reason why it was so great. Uh, so Ry Hickman, fan for life. I am excited that they have this gig writing Dreamer with Nicole Maines. Uh, but yeah, the DC Pride issue is also going to have pinup pages by Maria LaVey, Rose Stein, and Ted Brandt, Travis Moore, Noah Dow, Claire Rowe, Babstar, and more. Babstar will probably have something terrible that she phoned in. Um, they're also doing a DC Pride through the years one shot, which I feel like is going to rewrite a fair amount of um, homophobic DC history. <laughs> but that's okay, I guess. Uh, and then they're also doing a series of DC Pride covers, and the issues that those are going to be on are as follows. Steelworks number one cover by Joshua Swaby, aka Sway. Spirit World number two by Jessica Fong. Green Arrow number three by Luciano Vecchio. Adventures of Superman John Kent number four by Stephen Byrne. I wonder if that's that Byrne. Hmm. Superman number five by W. Scott Forbes, Batman Incorporated number nine by Rosie Campe, Tim Drake Robin number ten by Travis Moore, Poison Ivy thirteen and Harley Quinn thirty one have connecting covers by Claire Rowe. Ooh, I gotta check that out. Nightwing one hundred five by Yoshi Yoshitani, Wonder Woman eight hundred by Ted Brandt and Rose Stein. That one is fantastic. I've seen that one. And Detective Comics ten thirty seven by Amy Reader. Outside of just their Pride stuff coming in June, we know that we have Hot Girl number one coming for Dawn of DC, the Dawn of DC launch by Jadzia Axelrod and MNK Nahuilpan. I'm so sorry. Uh, two Tom King series announced for June, the first being a Penguin series, which I Sorry, I don't care about. But what I do care about is the new ongoing Wonder Woman series written by Tom King, starting with his uh, like kickoff in issue 800 and then going back and doing Wonder Woman number one in June or possibly July. But <coughs> Tom King, Wonder Woman. I hate to say it, man, but I have been waiting for a solid female writer to take over the Wonder Woman series and make that a book that I am interested in reading because I haven't seen that in years, if possibly ever. I think the last Wonder Woman that I enjoyed was the Grant Morrison Earth Earth 2 Wonder Woman, and that obviously not canon. <laughs> it would be really nice to have a female writer writing Wonder Woman and have me enjoy it. Um, but alas, that has not happened yet. Um, 
I accept the heck out of Tom King being the stand-in until then. (laughs) This will probably be the Wonder Woman series that I enjoy, just based on the fact that, I mean, 99% of Tom King's stuff I very much enjoyed. So um, I feel like he can give her a really solid series story something um and find a really nice balance between the the hard amazon and the um the loving amazon you know which is kind of the duality of wonder woman right and and if you have read tom king's batman specifically the issues where batman and wonder woman were a team up and it was this whole thing a that shit was hot as heck you know what i'm talking about and b joel jones's art I mean, again, hot as heck. <laughs> Whenever anybody talks about Wonder Woman and her cape, they always use that frame of Joel Jones on the rooftop with a bat signal and that cape, because Joel Jones is the best. Anyway, point C or three or whatever I was doing, um, he did that very, very well. Um, <laughs> very, very well. That was that was that was that was a great arc. And did I mention it was kind of hot? That was. You gotta read it. You gotta read it to see what I'm talking about. If it, it's worth it, uh, but anyway, that's a lot of the reasons why I think the Tom King Wonder Woman is gonna be stellar. Other things coming from DC in June, we have Mark Wade starting his Shazam series finally. <laughs> uh, DC is then going to be doing a free Dawn of DC primer in May, ten days after Free Comic Book Day. So I guess that's interesting. Um, It's going to be written by Joshua Williamson with artwork by Leandro Fernandez and will reveal, quote, Dawn of DC's secrets, threats, and connective stories in 2023 and beyond. You know, they always say stuff like that. But it includes uh, Night Terrors at DC. I guess for the free comic book day, Night Terrors is one of the things that we're getting. Um, Is this the one that had the really cringy thing about Joshua Williamson? No, I think that was something from last week. DC scribe. It was some cringe description of Joshua Williamson. He's not that good, okay? He's okay. There's definitely stuff he's read that I thought was trash. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Knights of Terror. It says the story stars Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman uh, as they discover the dead body of one of their earliest enemies at the Hall of Justice. Their investigation takes them to the past takes them past the land of the living, my bad, beyond the land of the dead, and into a realm of nightmares. Interesting. The only way to save the world is to call for help from an unlikely hero, Dead Man. Okay, that might be kind of cool. We'll see. But it is night, K-N-I-G-H-T, terror, so more Batman stuff. Joy. Uh, And then finally, over at Dynamite, Colin Bunn and artist Blackie Shepard, what a name, are going to be returning to the Reanimator world for the Kickstarter project Reanimator World of Cthulhu Eternal Lie. And you can find that and more information on my podcast notes. Now, before we get into the uh, TV and movie segment, which is the last segment of the podcast, as usual, I just want to mention purgatory really quickly. And I'm not talking purgatory with a Y. I'm talking P-U-R-G-A-T-O-R-I. The chaos character created back in the, I want to say, 90s or the late 90s as a uh, supposed to be a villain for Lady Death. Um regardless um i love this character you may have heard me talk about her a few times <laughs> with the purgatory must die series and after discovering that this is actually the third series by this 
author, well, creative team, really. It's the author and the writer. (laughs) The writer and the artist. Uh, This is their third series about Purgatory together. So I went back and I read the first two. It was Purgatory versus Vampirella, or Vampirella versus Purgatory, I think is what it was, in 2021. And then I believe it was Purgatory, and now it is uh, Purgatory Must Die. And they're all connecting story. Uh, really, really absolutely have enjoyed the crap out of it um, to an extent that I have started doing kind of compulsive research on the character of Purgatory. And because of that, I guess I had to make her a special. And what better special to give her than Halloween? Um, So the Halloween special has been switched from whatever the heck that I fudged into there. Uh, Switched from that to uh, basically what'll be Purgatory and the legacy of the Chaos Comics characters. Uh, She was one of less than a dozen, I want to say, characters who were bought by, who were originally Chaos Comics characters from like the 90s-ish um, who were uh, kind of went off into oblivion and were bought by dynamite some year, about a decade ago. Um, so really, really, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> um, I've already put in an embarrassing amount of work into it. You can check out her reading order that I've started already on my website. I have her 2014 Purgatory series, which was the first one under Dynamite, as well as the three Ray Fox series that are the more modern ones and the one that is currently ongoing. Um but just a little bit about Purgatory. She is a 2000 plus year old Um, I don't know if she really has a name for what she is, but she was, when she was, you know, not purgatory, she was Saqqara of Alexandria. She was an Egyptian woman who I believe fell in love with the queen, um, and ended up being their, like, favorite, like, slave in the harem, kind of, for the couple, the king and queen. Uh, long story short, uh, vampire bites her. She has demon blood in her, doesn't realize that until after the vampire has bit her and she turns into purgatory, whatever the heck you want to call that. Purgatory is just what people call her, but a lot of people still call her Sakara, which I really enjoy. Um, just really fun stuff. I'm, 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 I'm super excited about the Halloween special. So see you in, you know, seven months with that. So now we can go into the TV and movies. For things that were new and noteworthy over the past week, uh, there was some fun points, some fun points. Hello Tomorrow, episode six, kind of fully, more or less, confirmed all of the theories that... Maybe I had just missed it before, but yeah, there is no society on the moon. <laughs> it's all bullshit. And you learn a lot about the main character's kind of ties to this, like, history of bullshit about the moon. Uh, Ted Lasso Season 3 kicked off yesterday on Apple TV+. Plus. Great show. Hates Ted Lasso with a burning passion. I think the only thing that's really great about him is his ability to Cyrano the crap out of somebody. 
you know, the scene in Cienna de Bergerac where, um, the Steve Martin one is the one that I'm familiar with mostly. I know it's a play originally, but, uh, you know, he's in the bar in the Steve Martin version and some guy says, dude, you got a big ass nose or whatever. And Steve Martin just kind of like laughs and it's like, is that the best you could do? And spends like 10 minutes listing off way better insults for himself. Ted Lasso's good at that kind of thing. Um, also that scene of him verbally bitch slapping the ex-husband in the pub that one time was probably the most satisfying thing the series has ever put out. But anyway, season three kicked off. It's really interesting. Good lord, the ex-husband got skinny. What happened there? Uh, hope the actor's okay. Kaylee's still awesome. You know, Roy, I'm not sure what to say about that situation, about Roy and Keeley. Because I spent, like, the entire episode talking to my husband about how much I like their relationship. And then at the end, they say, oh, yeah, we're broken up. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Shadow and Bone Season 2 is on Netflix as of today. I don't honestly remember that much from Season 1, so I'm probably going to have to rewatch it before I watch Season 2. History of the World Part 2 kicked off on Hulu. It's got a bunch of really fun actors and characters and, and, and you know, stars and stuff in it. Um, always, always love the uh, the Mel Brooks stuff through and through till the day I die. Fantastic. Um, Gotham Knights also premiered recently the other day. Tuesday, maybe. God, it sucked. <laughs> really, really bad. I went into it hoping... And like looking for a good dude, dude. Batman didn't. Batman didn't tell you he was Bat. Bruce didn't tell you he was Batman because he knew you were a spoiled brat little punk, and he didn't want you to be his Robin. <laughs> that was such. That was such bad. I feel so sorry for Misha Collins and also the handful of child actors, or whatever they are, who are going to be pigeonholed into CW type roles after this. R.I.P. their careers. Also, the character of Duela Dent, I think they called her Duella, which I thought was weird. Isn't it Duela? Whatever. Duela Dent, uh, the Joker's daughter character, regardless of her actual biological parentage, which I don't know if has ever been strained out, she's a very interesting character, especially her reintroduction in the New 52 when Joker sliced off his face and threw it into the sewer, and she fucking tracks it down and sews it onto her own face. Dude. 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 She's such a cool character that hasn't been used properly ever, really. Um, and Gotham Knights is no is no different. That that shit sucked. What didn't suck? Uh, Class of 07 on Amazon. Emily Browning stars. Uh, apparently, it's in Australia. I'm an idiot who thought it was another continent at first, so we won't go too much to that. But it's excellent. Natural disasters, female friendship, backstabbing, murder, lies, betrayal laughter. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's great. <laughs> uh, basically this, uh, natural disaster traps this high school reunion group of an all girls school, um, on top of a mountain together. Really fucking funny. Um, I, I had to drag myself away from it to convince myself to pull, to record this podcast. So you're welcome or whatever. I'm definitely going right back to watching that when I'm done with this. As far as uh, trailers and announcements go, there's only one announcement, which I think some people were really surprised by. I am not. It's that James Gunn is confirmed to be directing the Superman Legacy movie that will be coming out in whatever year, 2024, 2025, I don't care. 
Um, I'm not surprised by that because he was already announced to be writing it and producing it. I don't think there's anything that James Gunn would do where he writes it, produces it, and doesn't direct it. Um, so not surprising. But more importantly, very much more importantly, um, American Born Chinese is coming out on May 24th on Disney Plus with all eight episodes in one single dump. I am super excited. I have the graphic novel for this one. It's brilliant. It is by Jean Luen Yang, who is a fantastic Chinese-American author. There is a number of things that he's done across Marvel and DC that are totally brilliant. I think The Monkey King is just one of them, or The Monkey Prince, my bad, is just one of them. Um, but him, American-born Chinese, was kind of one of his legacy things. And if I'm not mistaken... Superman Smashes the Clan was him as well. I'm going to Google that really quick around my cat. Superman Smash. Yep, Jean Luen Yang. That was him as well. Super good. And that was Guri Hiru, I believe, was the art. Yep, art by Guri Hiru, which is a duo of Asian artists, female artists. Um, but yeah, um, Superman Smashes the Clan. Absolutely fantastic. Jean Luen Yang. I am so incredibly here for his moment that he's having right now, meeting all of these stars, some of whom just won Oscars. You know who I'm talking about. Congratulations, frankly. Um, it's 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 really exciting to see, um, and I'm very, very happy for him and excited to see the show when it is out towards the end of the month. Now, the reason that I, besides from the trailer, the trailer, watch the trailer. It looks really good. Um, the trailer, obviously, is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this. The other reason was just this morning, artist, uh, just like James Gunn, <laughs> artist James Jean, uh, posted his art for the movie. Um, James Jean, if you're not familiar, is a, I believe, Taiwanese-American artist who, um, has not only decades of fine art experience uh, with a brilliant style that he's curated, um, but he has been able to do some really exciting pop culture art, such as um, the Umbrella Academy, the first series of covers, Apocalypse Suite, for Gerard Way and Gabrielle Ba. Uh, speaking of Gerard Way, he, James Jean, did the My Chemical Romance, the Black Parade album art, and all, you know, ensuing art that goes with the album that was all James Jean as well. More recently, um, a number of movies he's done posters for. I know Mother was one that I didn't watch from a couple of years ago uh, that he did a poster for. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once was one that he did a poster for, as well as Pinocchio and The Whale, all three of which got Oscars, if I'm not mistaken, at this year's Oscars. And I know that I say all this stuff about, you know, screw award ceremonies and stuff, but the Oscars is the one that I can still stand by for... 75% of the time and say that, you know, that actually does kind of mean that you were a good project. Regardless of that, James Jean getting these, um, being asked to do these posters by these writers and directors and creators, uh, I think is really impressive. So when he put out the image for his poster for American Born Chinese today, he put it up with a statement. And I wanted to read that to you because it is an incredibly powerful statement. <clears throat> so here it is. What he says is, while watching American Born Chinese, my ears burned and I squirmed in my seat. 
I winced, only because Jin's journey felt so hauntingly familiar. It was the pain of recognition, the ill-fitting clothes, the feeling of being on the outside, the percussive sound of parents arguing through the walls in a language not fully grasped. I had never seen my own experience of adolescence depicted on screen like this before, and it was jarring to watch. As a father, I see the importance of my own story and the story of my immigrant parents being told now to my son. He will never know the same struggle, but as his elders sink into the sediment of history, we can create the foundations for a future in which he can be embraced and seen as he develops his own identity. My poster for American-born Chinese depicts Jin on his way to school, and the Monkey King has shape-shifted into his backpack. While his backpack alludes to the idea of cultural and emotional baggage, the floor emerging from within it is a pastiche of the paintings of Giuseppe Castiglione, an Italian missionary who became a court painter in China during the Qing Dynasty and revolutionized traditional silk scroll painting by combining Western rendering techniques with traditional Chinese aesthetics. The reference to Castiglione represents the idea of cross-assimilation between East and West, not only for the narrative of the show, but in my own work as well. The cowlick on Jin's head is from my own experience growing up in New Jersey, where my Italian Barbara was incapable of cutting Asian hair, resulting in the shorter hairs shooting straight up. On Jin's phone, Mjolnir flies into Freddie Wong's head, further emphasizing the clashing of cultures. So that was the James Jean statement about his art for American-born Chinese. I highly recommend you read the graphic novel, check out the show on May 24th, check out the poster, and not most importantly, but importantly in, for this moment, check out James Jean's artwork. He is incomparable. There's a reason that it's on my bucket list. I want to get one of his prints. They're like over $500, which is why I don't have one. But what I do have is his art book, and it is impressive to the utmost extent. For the anime news segment, same as with the manga news, um, there'll be a lot more information on my podcast notes if you want to go check those out and see more. Love Live Sunshine is getting a fantasy anime spinoff called Sunshine in the Mirror. I watched this one. It's super cute. I'm not a big fan of like musicals, so I tend to skip the music parts of these shows. Um, but oh my gosh, so cute. Such slice of life. Wow. Um, and this one has a trailer, which I also have linked in my podcast notes. Tiora Eternity is getting a third anime season, which is going to be covering the This World arc. Um, it has finished the second season, um, which I believe was 20 episodes, and that aired on Crunchyroll and in Japan on Sunday. You Were Experienced, I Wasn't, and This Is How We Started Dating is a anime that got a trailer that will be debuting on... Ooh, I don't know when, but it'll be this year. And volume three of the light novels will be published in English on April 12th. Oshi no Ko, which is one I've talked about on this podcast before, is officially premiering April 12th with an extended 90-minute version of the episode that will play in advanced screenings at cinemas nationwide in Japan starting tomorrow, the 17th of March. Now, this one I don't know how to say, so I'm going to do my best. Nayar Automata Ver 11A. 
I have no idea. But that is one that looks really interesting from this season, uh, and it was just dubbed, it was just subbed, but they have now announced that it is getting an English dub, and that will be premiering uh, this Saturday on March 18th. That it's going to include returning cast members from the related game. The Ishura anime is going to be streaming solely on Disney+. Plus. You can check out the description on the notes. Kuma 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 Bear Punch is premiering April 3rd. It is the second anime series based on Kumanano uh, and 2029's, I guess is the other author's name, Kuma 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 Bear Light Novels, which I am very tempted to check out because there was an absolutely adorable show. Uh, the first season premiered in 2010, airing for 12 episodes, and then it's been uh, dubbed on Crunchyroll in English. It is published by Seven Seas in English as well. Tonikawa Over the Moon is getting a second season, is going to be put, uh, put out on April 7th to begin with. Uh, the second season will feature a returning cast and staff. Uh, the first television anime, the first series of it premiered in 2020 and had 12 episodes, currently on Crunchyroll with an English dub. Finally, My Happy Marriage is a light novel series that will be streaming on anime, uh, sorry, streaming, <laughs> streaming as an anime on Netflix later this year. As for what's coming out still in this season of anime releases, I am finally getting into Trigun Stampede. Um, the whole backstory of him being a plant and everything, I think, is fascinating. I did not see the original Trigun anime, <coughs> so don't hate me that I don't already know all these things. Also, if you liked Bash's coat, you can now buy it. Um, I believe, let's see... From Super Groupies is what the company is that's making the coat. I have the link for that in my podcast notes as well. Also, Tomuchan is a girl was not done last week, which I am thrilled to discover. As of yesterday, it had a new episode. I believe it's probably going to end on 12 or 13 instead of 10, like I thought. And I have, uh, in the past few weeks or so, finished In the Land of Leah Dale, which I had started previously and didn't like. But I think I've seen enough shit anime now that it looks a lot better in my eyes. Um, and I also rewatched Interviews with Monster Girls, which is still friggin' cute. That leaves us with Mandalorian, episode three of chapter, uh, no, season three, which was chapter 19, The Convert. And who is it exactly who is the convert that they're talking of? Because it could be more than one person, uh, starting with the less exciting side of things. Um... No, it was still exciting, but like the less happy side of things, I guess. Uh, scientist Bro, who was the one who the Empire strong-armed into doing the clone work with Grogu that we saw in previous seasons, you know, the young guy with glasses who didn't want Grogu to be harmed, you know, all that stuff. Well, he has left the Empire, obviously, and he now lives at a like amnesty camp sort of thing, which is like a nice little commune for ex-imperialist soldiers and whatnot. Um, and he makes some buddies and they're all like appreciating their ability to be here. They can all recognize really how lucky they are to be there because the empire would have killed them if they, if the positions were reversed here. Um, whereas the new Republic is like, yeah, sure. We can, we can give you guys a place in society. But we also have uh, the female officer from, um, it's the, um, he, he ends up running into 
I had to look up her name, Elia Kane, who was one of the captains on Moff Gideon's, like, whole court of ships, his whole dealio there. Um, who, of course, you remember Moff Gideon being the villain from previous seasons, um, who had the Darksaber at one point, and then, um, I guess... Alia Kane, she was one of his one of his generals, and now she's at the amnesty camp as well. He's apparently been brain scrambled or something, and it just isn't out of the picture, supposedly. So, so she recognizes him immediately, and he calls her out for having been Moff Gideon's like lackey. Um, and so they start off kind of rocky, but then he expresses to her eventually. She kind of weasels her right in, and he expresses to her how he's kind of sad that he can't use the research that he was doing for the Empire to help the Republic, because there it's illegal. And he's like, but it's such good it's such good work, there was so much I was going to be able to help so many people, blah blah blah. And so she, Elia Kane, she convinces him to try it anyway, and gets him all these uh, like resources and stuff set up, and all these connections. And then turns around and turns him in for breaking the New Republic's laws and doing the Empire science work against the rules in secret. So that sucks for him. Uh, they honor Elia Kane as a brave soldier, and then they, uh, Doctor, um, Doctor something, I can't, I'm blanking on his name, um, but he ends up getting put into that brain scramble machine, which is apparently what happened to Moff Gideon, and he starts freaking out, and the the doctor is whatever is like, it's fine, it'll be fine. Basically, they're giving him a frontal lobotomy, <laughs> um, but while the uh, while Elia Kane is being basically honored as, like, a loyal and true, you know, New Republic soldier, um, she, for whatever reason, is allowed to, like, supervise his brain scramble. Um, and so she has all the controls in front of her, and while no one's watching, she turns the knob up, to, like, all the way up, and he basically just roasts in the machine as she, like, just stands there and smiles and eats a biscuit. Um... So, so basically, I think Moff Gideon has to still be alive, right? And she's making sure that she's taking care of anybody or anyone who knows about him. It's either that or he is actually gone and she's taking revenge on anybody who was involved. Either way, though, this bitch is empire through and through. Good people don't do this stuff to their allies. Um, you know, she took pleasure in trapping him and watching him basically be killed slowly, no matter what her intentions of that were. Um, and so there you get, like, who is the convert? Is it the doctor, who we, the professor, whatever, who we just saw killed? Probably not. Is it her? Is she the convert who is pretending to be a convert or who has now found herself a new role with just as much vileness to it as she had under the Empire? Because then we have the other side of the story, which is, of course, completely different vibe, right? And that's where we left off in the last episode with Bokatan saving Din Djarin from the waters of Mandalore. I think what happened was he sunk and the Beskar on his armor was just so heavy that he just went all the way to the bottom. Um, and of course, we know that we saw a fucking Mythosaur on their way out. Um, and she keeps that close to her chest. Bokatan keeps that close to her chest. She doesn't mention the Mythosaur. She asks him, did you see anything? He says, no, it was too dark. She saw the Mythosaur um, and she doesn't say anything about it. 
So the three of them, it's Bokatan and Din and Grogu, of course, they go back to what was Bokatan's home, her new home on one of the moons nearby, right? No, not right. They are getting bombed by the Empire now. The Empire is probably aware that somebody went to Mandalore, and possibly that Bo-Katan went to Mandalore, and they do not want her gaining power. Definitely no. They are not friends of Bo-Katan. Um, and so they go and likely having heard that she went back to Mandalore, they're like, no, we're going to put you in your place, and they bomb her home again, really, because Mandalore was the first home they bombed, and now her new base of power has been destroyed. Um, so she and Din barely get out of there with Grogu uh, on his ship, and I think she has her own ship, but whatever the case is. Where did they go? They go back to um, the armor, and where she has the kind of fringe Mandalorians, the former, what would have been formerly the Death Watch Mandalorians, who are the kind of extremists the way that Din is. Um, and so he comes out and he, he was smart enough to bring a vial of water from Mandalore with him. So he has proof. Um, so they get out of the thing. Now, what was really interesting was to see Paz Vizsla's reaction to Bo-Katan as she gets out of her, um, out of the plane, because they have a history. I believe it was like his father fought in the Death Watch against her sister, something like that. Their family has history and it is no bueno. It is not good. And Paz Vizsla, in case you are not aware, he is the heavy Mando, the blue dude. And I think they put a little extra detail in his mask in this episode. He looked really cool. But anyway, um, his reaction to seeing her was pretty nice. Um, and then they go in and they talk to the armorer, right? And and she asks, did you, were you successful? And he says, yes. And they're like, no, there's no way. And so he pulls out the water, gives the armorer the water from Mandalore, and she has a way of testing it to make sure that it is water from the mines of Mandalore. And it is. And she says, you have been redeemed. And she looks at Bo-Katan, and she says, you too have been redeemed as a true Mandalorian. And she's like, wait, what? Bo-Katan hasn't taken her helmet off since she came out of the water, saving Din. She kind of just accidentally subscribed to the creed. <laughs> so is she the convert? We don't have history of Bo-Katan post this. We don't we didn't we didn't have it post rebels until this really. Um so this is very exciting to see. Um potentially Bo-Katan regaining her generational religious beliefs um, because she didn't she she still didn't take the helmet off even after the armorer tells her you know you haven't taken your helmet off cool so yeah you you are now sworn to the creed and you're a true mandalorian again and she's like oh and she still doesn't take the helmet off who is the convert of this episode? That that's I think it's a really clever title. Also, to wrap it up, this episode was also a really, really great reminder that while Star Wars itself is, in all technicalities, sci-fi, just because it takes place in a relatively sci-fi world, the world of Star Wars itself can have can encompass many different genres, like covert spy stuff, which we saw with the um, Andor show, and a little bit here, and the Westerns, which was a lot of what Mandalorian started off, you know, whatever you really want, we can get different genres of television and movies from the Star Wars universe, and I think that that's really, really cool. Um, I, I love to see the variety and the fact that they just keep surprising us, I guess, um, 
in a good way. I think that's 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 only a good sign. So that's it. That's this week's episode. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on Mandalorian and whatever else the heck it was that I talked about on this episode. I will, of course, be back next week with episode 92, in which we'll be discussing more tarot studies. The card of the week will be the Hierophant. That'll be an interesting one. Uh, We'll have a new manga of the week, of which I have not decided yet. We'll cover some more manga news. We'll have a lot of comics to talk about that came out this week, such as Just a Society of America, All Against All, Captain Marvel, Hexware, uh, Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods, um, Hellcat. That's one that I'm very excited for. Go ahead and check out the Hellcat special before you read that or after for whatever context you want. More comic book news and, of course, more anime and more Mandalorian. So I've been very excited for everything that we have going on for the podcast, and I hope you are too. Have a good week. Happy spring. Blessed Equinox. Um, Stay safe.